political prisons in the Arab world operate outside of international regulation, and anything goes behind cell walls, including torture. Arab political prisons are meant to destroy the soul by inflicting as much damage as needed on the body. But the political prisoners still find ways to express their humanity. They would start a diary by writing a sentence orally in their mind. They would repeat that sentence, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And then they would recite it to someone else who would repeat it. And then they would every day write several sentences in their mind. Okay, memorize it. When they get out of prison, they have a book that they put down on paper and then publish it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, Arab prison writings. And later, women at the forefront of the protest in Iran. But first, Diana Obeid studies political prisons in the Arab world. She says the brutality of Arab political prisons is rooted in colonialism. Diana Obeid is a lecturer of Arabic and Middle East studies at Christopher Newport University. Diana, you write that the aim of Arab prisons is to destroy the soul of prisoners. What do you mean? Do you mean the aim is to break the will of the prisoner and make them docile? Yes. Basically, the aim of the Arab prisons is to turn those human beings into docile bodies. And by that, I mean to dehumanize them, turn them to what we call the haywana. Haywana uh, comes from the word hayawanat and hayawanat and animals. And when we uh, deprive these people from their humanities, when we look at them as non-humans, then it's easy for the state or the government to mistreat them because they're not looked at as human beings anymore. By Arab prisons, which countries do you mean? We're talking about political prisoners. I mean, uh, other kinds of prisons follow the rules of the state. They are internationally monitored. And what we're talking about the political prisons, these are the prisons that people haven't heard of, like Tasma Mart in the Alps Mountains, which the uh, Moroccan government denied its existence for years at a time. They are Tadmor in Syria, where nobody knows what's going on. What I study is uh, prisons in Egypt and Syria and basically in Morocco. What sort of treatment do prisoners uniformly receive? once they're arrested. It's interesting to see when you read writings by prison writers from Egypt, from Syria, and from Morocco, you will see that there is this commonality among them, especially like by the way they are grabbed first by a secret police. They are then tortured when they do not confess. We, we hear from their stories how they are transferred. They are tied together uh, in one cycle. So if one prisoner want to raise their hand, they have all to raise their hand. If one of them wants to use the toilet, I mean, they all have to watch him. So it is from the transfer and then to the reception where they we, we, they call it Haflat uh, al-Istiqbal, which is a reception party. A reception party means that they're going to tortured as they weigh into the prison as a form of otherness. And then we have the violence, which is physical and mostly psychological punishments that were incurred on these prisoners. And they all seem to have this sense of Futility of liberation. I mean, even when they were liberated, the government was kept their eyes on them. And if they did not leave the country, they were also monitored and supervised by the state as well. So liberation didn't mean much to them. They went from a small prison to a bigger prison. How has the Arab political prison system come into being? What's the history of this brutal system? Prison writings have been integrated into Arabic literature since forever. I mean, we talk about Abu Firas al-Hamadani, al-Rumiyyat, but the punitive 
system as we know it nowadays happened with the days of colonization. The Arab world was colonized by the uh, British and French forces. For example, one of the famous prisons in uh, Syria was built by the French. So after colonization, the states that came to be, these were military states. So they continued with that trend of the prisons. How is this prison philosophy different from political prison in the West? Reform the soul versus destroy the soul? Yes. I mean, Michel Foucault, uh, who is a French philosopher, talks about the change in the prisons in Europe. By He talks about how the concentration was on discipline of the body and then it moved to save the soul. And uh, in contrast to this Foucault's depiction of the Western prison as a disciplinary institution that reforms the soul, Arab political prisons are meant basically, what I argue, is to destroy the soul by inflicting as much damage as needed on the body. Tell me about several different prison writers that have struck you and share with me, if you have them with you, a little from their writings. I mean, if we look at Bara Saraj uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood from Syria, was imprisoned during the father Hafez al-Assad's regime. And after spending 12 years in prison, he left to Chicago where his brother was living and practicing medicine. And they were able to talk to the uh, U.S. government and have him released from uh, the uh, prison. And he went back to Harvard and finished his doctorate. This is from Saraj's testimony describing a day in prison. He says, The days in Tedmore were long often very long. Life consisted of torture and the time you had until the next torture. We were beaten as we got up in the mornings, as we ate, as we shaved. The cells were often so full that we would be pushed up together feet to feet. There were three olives per person to eat. One egg shared between eight and a bit of bulgur, rice or bread, which the guards often urinated on. It was also forbidden to talk to other inmates. If they caught you doing that, you'd get beaten up. For example, they told one prisoner to lie on his back. Then one of the guards jumped on his stomach. A few hours later, he was dead. Or they would break a prisoner's fingers by shutting the cell door window on it. In 1989, one of the guards killed around 100 prisons. I can't imagine. It's as though he's making it up. The cruelty is so extreme. Yes, and this cruelty, we see it, we see it I mean, repeated and repeated. Like if we talk about Ahmad Raif, Ahmad Raif, who was Egyptian, uh, also imprisoned, but this time for allegations that he belonged to the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And he wrote in his book, Al-Bawaba al-Sawda, The Black Gate. Uh, the weird thing is that we are we were not the only ones getting beaten. Those who used to beat us during the day were themselves beaten at night. We used to watch them from the opening in the door of the cell. They were beaten from night to dawn. Those are the wardens he's talking about here. So I'll continue. The wardens were asked to send 300 prisoners to use the bathroom at the same time. And they had only an hour to do that. The warden would use any means necessary to make us finish on time. But most of the times he would fail and get punished as a result. There was no way he could lie about that too, because there was always someone watching. The same thing would happen to the warden who was responsible responsible for distributing the food. So basically here the wardens, even if they were sympathetic with the prisoners, they didn't dare to be because they would be punished themselves and their punishment was as severe as the prisoners. So it is a matter of survival. In these countries with these horrible political prisons, is it widely known that they exist and that people who go there are going to be brutally treated? 
Of course, all Syrians know about the Tadmor prison. These punishments by the state usually, not only to incite confessions from the prisoners, mostly it is to teach others not to behave like those prisoners. It is to uh, instill a lesson in these prisoners, that the lesson that the other people, the family of the prisoners, will hear of and they will stop. For example, if we look at... Hiba Dabag. Hiba Dabag was imprisoned in 1981 in Syria and she wrote in her book Five Minutes Only, Nine Years in Prisons of Syria. She wrote about how she was imprisoned because her brothers belonged to the Muslim Brotherhood. And her brother flee and the state could not catch him. And so they caught her instead and they imprisoned her so that her brother would give up and surrender to save her life. While she's in prison, they basically killed all her family. So some are also used as pawns to capture the men in the family. I mean, Arab women have been politically active for many, many, many years, and many of them became political prisoners versus the image of uh, the Arab woman in the West who is veiled, obedient, wife, oppressed. Arab women have shown the same tenacity as men did and they were imprisoned for the same reasons. Add to that that they were called criminals, delinquents, but also social delinquents because a woman's place is home and she should not be politically active. So she was punished twice by the state and by patriarchy. How are these men and women who've been political prisoners able to write about the experience? How do they ever get their writing out of the prison? And what do they write on? Oh, that's a very good question. Remember that these prisoners didn't have the luxury of pens and papers and they were not allowed because prisoners before have written from prisons and their uh, writings were a cause of embarrassment for the state. The state decided that not to allow pens, papers, uh, whether it is Egyptian state I'm talking about or the Syrian uh, or even the Moroccan in Tasmamart, they were not allowed to have pen and paper. Most of those used their ingenuity to uh, basically to write these writings. Let's talk about Sanal Ibrahim. Sanal Ibrahim used to uh, write on Bafra papers, which is cigarette papers. Nawal al-Sadawi is an Egyptian feminist known for her activism against female genital mutilation in the Arab world. And she used to write on uh, toilet paper. Right. When those were not found, some write orally. I mean, what they would do is that they would start a diary by writing a sentence orally in their mind. They would repeat that sentence, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And then they would recite it to someone else who would repeat it. And then they would every day write several sentences in their mind. Okay, memorize it. And then memorize it again. And that's how uh, they have a diary. And when they get out of prison, they have a book that they put down on paper and then publish it. You know, with these writings and public knowledge of the pure corruption and brutality, it's awful that people remain helpless in the face of the administrations to destroy the prisons or change the system, right? I mean, one of the prisons in Syria, for example, was destroyed by ISIS when they took control of that part of Syria. But the change is not by destroying one prison. They destroyed one prison, they can build another and another and another and another. There is always a prison they can move these political prisoners to, I mean, or there's always a way of torturing or victimizing these human beings. But more important is the way that in spite of all of this, 
I mean, in spite of this dehumanization, those prisoners refuse to be the docile bodies that the state has proclaimed them to be. Since secrecy is the essence of Arab prisons, by reading about the experience of those prisoners, by talking about it like we are doing right now, this is the way of for uh, for the writers to resist you know and this struggle that they engender is vital really is very important for a critical reflection on our current situation these themes demand an exceptionally strong and sympathetic response from us our readers uh, so we as readers become witnesses with a mission also with a with a conscience Diana Obeid, thank you for sharing your insight on this with me today. Thank you very much. Diana Obeid is a lecturer of Arabic and Middle East Studies at Christopher Newport University. In 2022, Masa Amini died after she was arrested by the Iranian morality police for not wearing her headscarf properly. Her death sent convulsions through Iran as intense protests threatened to topple the authoritarian government. Payman Jafari is a history and international studies professor at William & Mary. He calls the protests a revolt with a revolutionary perspective. Um, Masa Jina Amini was born in Kurdish area of Iran, and she was, like many other young women in Iran, trying to have her daily life, have fun, be young, what young people do. And when she was stopped by the police because she was not wearing the headscarf and was taken into arrest, she collapsed apparently due to police violence and died. And this really ignited the protests because lots of anger that had been accumulated over the years about this kind of behavior from the police, infringement on people's everyday life, and especially on women's, really ignited that accumulated anger. And that resulted in the protests that started after she died in September last year. The protests were so widespread and the anger was so intense that it really seemed to gain momentum week by week. Did you hold your breath for a while there? Absolutely. This was a very intense moment uh, for me in terms of both on personal level, caring about the people who live in that country, but also academically in terms of trying to understand and grasp the dynamics, the potentials and the limits of these protests, and also the hope that was coming up in terms of maybe this can be a moment that people can actually liberate themselves, that they can push over the barriers of fear that have been built over many years in terms of how an authoritarian state has limited the political and social space of many people in Iran. How do the protests compare to the Iranian revolution back in 1979? That big? Well, uh, this was definitely... I think the biggest uh, protests and most intense protests in the last 40 years in terms of the demands of challenging the core of the Islamic Republic, demanding a change of the political system, not only for women's rights. Women's rights were at the forefront of these protests, but it was about corruption. It was about lack of democracy, about the growing social inequality in Iran. And therefore, many people started to make Make connections with what happened in 1979. But I would remind you that that revolution was much bigger, much more socially rooted. Approximately 11% of the population participated in that revolution. And it was finally able to actually topple the monarchy in 79. This movement from the very beginning, I emphasized its importance in terms of a revolt with a revolutionary perspective. And here comes the distinction that is important, I think, with 79. This had the potential to grow into a revolution, and we don't know if it will do so in the coming months and years. But during those months of protest, it did not mobilize the masses on the same scale as 79. Is it ongoing? 
The protests are ongoing because the grievances have not gone away. Uh, many people, especially the youth and women, are angry about the compulsory veil. People want the choice to wear or not to wear the veil. There is really authoritarian politics that has increased in the last 10 years, 15 years. And therefore, the daily protests are continuing in terms of women pushing the boundaries that are imposed on them. In the public space, in restaurants, in their daily lives, they do wear what they want. Some are not even wearing the hijab. And this is an everyday form of resistance. But the large-scale protests have disappeared from the streets for the moment, except in some regions of Iran. But they will resurface again because those grievances have not disappeared. I'm confused by the government's response. It seems both brutally cracking down on protesters, but also somewhat giving way. Right. I mean, because the government has become very much concentrated among a very conservative core of politicians and mainly older men, religious men. And there is a group thing going on here. They are totally underestimating the level of anger among the population and the will to do away with all of those restrictions. And therefore, they are doing what they are used to do. So repression and more repression. But at the same time, in the everyday life of people, they are losing the battle. Their legitimacy has been undermined. Their capacity to manage and organize politics and society has been undermined. But yes, for the time being, they have been able to repress the protests. How large is the population, would you guess, of Iranian-Americans in the United States? And how effective has their solidarity been for their relatives and friends and compatriots in Iran? Right. Uh, it's a significant number that has come in different waves after the Iranian revolution to the U.S., for instance, in the 1980s, immediately after the revolution and during the Iran-Iraq war, then in the 1990s, and then after the 2009 protests in Iran, a new wave of mainly young Iranians arrived in the, in the U.S., and that migration uh, has continued. Therefore, there are important links with Iran between this diasporic community of Iranians and what is happening in Iran. And their solidarity has been very important in terms of gaining media attention for what is happening in Iran and building solidarity and giving voice to the voiceless in, in, in Iran. And that international solidarity has emerged in Europe and in other countries as well. And that's very a forceful message. You know, the U.S. has imposed heavy financial sanctions on Iran for years. Have those sanctions impacted the protests or the protesters? Yes, and this is actually where also when we are talking about the Iranian diaspora and community, divisions come in in assessing the impacts of these sanctions. Personally, I think that the sanctions have had devastating impacts on Iranians, ordinary Iranians in Iran, while actually strengthening the regime. Because financial sanctions actually lead to more authoritarianism because the elites gather together and uh, unify and increase their military force and, and repression. And also sanctions increase corruption. For instance, in Iran, the black market has grown. Therefore, those who are attached to the state and the revolutionary guards have benefited from this. While the ordinary people who do not have the benefit of those linkages to the state have had a hard time finding medicine. The huge inflation has uh, diminished their uh, wages and salaries and therefore has incapacitated them in terms of building organizations and civil society. And I think this had therefore adversely also impacted their capacity to organize protests and demonstrations, not as blind explosions, but in order to give them sustainable kind of outcome in terms of organizational capacity. Have you seen where anyone has put forth better plans than the severe sanctions the U.S. imposes on Iran? I mean, yes. a, a different way we might pursue our relationship? 
Absolutely. I think what is really needed is people-to-people solidarity. Lots of students in Iran, labor activists, women rights activists are struggling against an authoritarian state and they need solidarity from students, uh, labor unions and NGOs in the U.S. and elsewhere. In terms of attention, writing, for instance, to Iranian embassies whenever a student or a trade unionist arrested. What is also needed is creating actually means for Iranians to send money to Iran because the sanctions do not allow this. And one of the reasons that mass strikes in Iran have not developed in these protests, unlike the 1979 revolution, is that many people are just trying to survive. They cannot have one day without salary. Therefore, in majority, they have not started strikes. So remittances could actually help Iranians inside of Iran. The third factor is actually uh, VPNs and other ways to bypass the government's restrictions on the internet. And again, often sanctions have actually undermined this potential to provide to ordinary Iranians these kind of means to bypass those government uh, restrictions. Returning to the young woman who was killed, Masa Amini, it was startling and impressive to see Iranian women taking to the streets and young Iranian women risking arrest, being arrested, beaten, and yet still coming back and defying a very repressive government. What do you understand about Iranian women? Were you totally taken by surprise Or is there also something about Iranian women that has not been recognized more widely? I was not surprised because this is coming from 40 years of everyday resistance and resilience by Iranian women. Immediately after the Iranian revolution, when the compulsory veil was imposed on women, on Women's Day, 8th of March, thousands of women marched against the compulsory veil. And on the other hand, During the last four decades, many women, also from more traditional or religious families, have actually increasingly participated in the public space and education. And that's really the paradox of this state, that in many ways it has restricted women, but it has also created pathways for many women to participate. And therefore, whenever women have started to participate, they have bumped against these walls of restrictions, and therefore they have started to resist, and they have done so in many forms and shapes. And this time around, they have really taken the lead, not only in terms of being present at the forefront of the demonstrations, but also putting forward the demand for women's rights at the heart of this movement and inspiring many uh, women, by the way, not only in the Middle East, but also in the U.S., because, as you know, women's rights have been under attack in our country as well. And this is another element, I think, of international solidarity, that the fight and the struggle for equal rights is not limited to Iran or other countries, but it is a global struggle. Heyman Jafari, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. Heyman Jafari is a history and international studies professor at William & Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. The Yemen civil war started back in 2014. Since then, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the United States have all gotten involved, triggering a long and protracted proxy war. Bernie Kostler is a political science professor at James Madison University and co-author of Proxy War in Yemen. He says the situation there is a major humanitarian disaster. Bernie, you and your co-author ask, why the U.S. government is supporting the richest nation in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, which is destroying the poorest nation in the Middle East, Yemen. As you ask that question, what do you think the answer is? Why are we? It's a policy that spanned three administrations, starting with Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Sort of the mindset has really been, we need to support Saudi Arabia to balance against the Iranians. We don't want the Iranians to have a friendly government to them in Yemen, 
which would only increase their, their threat towards the entire region. So that mindset has been the overriding factor for all three administrations, supporting the Saudis to balance against the Iranians. Then the problem, of course, is also, are the Saudis our friends? And how effective has our billions of dollars in aid and military weapons been? Yes, um, that's a good question. I mean, the U.S. in those three administrations sold $55 billion in weapons to the Saudis. That included $20 billion worth of missiles. So are the Saudis friends of the United States? That has been something which all U.S. presidents have been telling us. I mean, that's curious because during the campaign, Joe Biden said, Saudi Arabia is the pariah and it will make them the pariah they really are. He campaigned hard on being you know, tough on the Saudis. Once he was elected... He, of course, had to kiss the ring, had to travel to Saudi Arabia because Russia had just invaded Ukraine. Energy security demanded the president to basically go back to the status quo. So why was Joe Biden the first U.S. president to campaign on the Saudis are the pariah of the Middle East? The reference point was the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. Jamal Khashoggi was a, a Saudi journalist. He was a dissident. And he was killed at the order of the highest ranking member of the royal family, the crown prince himself, who was the de facto ruler. It was after that that the Senate and the House, in rare, rare, rare bipartisan fashion, passed the war power resolution demanding the Trump, then Trump administration, to cease all support for the Saudis against Yemen. Overall, 330,000 people have died in Yemen. It is one of the world's greatest humanitarian disasters. Two-thirds of Yemen's population are in dire need of humanitarian assistance. We have over two million children who are malnourished. It's an absolute disaster by all accounts. So it's not that all of a sudden members of Congress cared about the plight of civilians or the plight of Yemenis. It was sort of that uneasy relationship with the Saudis. Saudi Arabia has become too much of a liability. That was the termination point for congressional support for Saudi Arabia. So help us understand why Saudi Arabia has been involved in this proxy war with Iran in Yemen. What does Yemen mean to Saudi Arabia? So Saudi Arabia has a sort of a history of interference in, in Yemen. After all, it shares a very, very large border with its southern neighbor. And in 2015, after, you know, you know large-scale protests against the government, and that's still sort of an aftershock of the Arab Spring, when all of a sudden you had Arabs across the Middle East, ordinary people staging large-scale protest, demanding an end to these authoritarian governments, whether that's in Egypt or Tunisia or Algeria. And the large rebel group in Yemen, the partisans of God, and they're colloquially known as the Houthis, their core doctrine is anti-corruption. That's almost a religious sort of appeal is to fight corruption. They're toppled the government. And that was unacceptable to the Saudis. Why? Well, so the, the Houthis are a Shia sect. They're closely allied to Iran, which, of course, is a Persian Shia country. And that was seen as unacceptable to the Saudis. They couldn't have Iranian-allied government south to its border. So the Saudis launched Operation Decisive Storm in 2015 to restore the previous government and expel and destroy the Houthis. But they got bogged down in a lengthy war for seven years. Why wasn't it successful? Well, that, that's curious because, you know, you have this massive country, one of the richest countries in the world, awash with high-tech military equipment, all of which, of course, had been provided and has been historically by the United States. But the Saudis never managed to translate that superior firepower into political engineering to redo the government the way they wanted. And that was partly one inability and incompetence on the battlefield. So both in tactical operational terms, Saudis didn't know what they were doing. The Saudis didn't know where to shoot, how to shoot, how to distinguish military targets from civilian targets. So we had military advisors from the US government for years trying to help them stay within the realms of international humanitarian law, meaning you have to distinguish between military targets and civilian targets, and this is how you shoot. But they failed. What about the Iranians? What were they doing in terms of weaponry and manpower? Well, so the Iranians 
were very good at what they were doing. So the Saudis had sort of this maximalist agenda. We need to restore the previous government. We need to destroy the Houthis. The Iranians, on the other hand, they had sort of a, a bait and bleed framework. We're bleeding the resources of the Saudis. They didn't really have an agenda or sort of a, a framework of what this government should look like. All they cared about really was to, to sap Saudi resources for a very long time, embarrass the Saudis. So in Yemen, you had internal strife, of course, mm -hmm. and then the superpowers come in, yes. or the regional powers, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and then these nations backed by others. What's happening to the people within Yemen? Again, I bring it back to the United States because the U.S. supported so many, all, all of the missiles to Saudi Arabia. We had, during this period, 2016 till 2022, we had over 24,000 coalition airstrikes by the Saudi coalition. Over 2,100 were civilian targets. That's a staggering 9% of coalition airstrikes only. So the firepower from the sky either killed directly civilians or through collateral damage. United Arab Emirates, these were forces actually on the ground. They have been accused by the United Nations for running secret detention centers, torture, electrocution, violation of due process rights, and involuntary disappearances. Basically, people vanish. They were killed and their bodies were never found. So the sort of the human rights violations that happened and war crimes that happened in Yemen, you name it, you name it, they happened in Yemen. Has the U.S. since withdrawn its support for Saudi Arabia and withdrawn its military and political support for any sort of outcome in Yemen? The U.S. government under the Biden administration is supporting the U.N. brokered ceasefire, which went into effect last year. It's a very shaky ceasefire. Biden also announced an end to all offensive operations for the Saudis. But that's curious because Saudi Arabia is still at war with Yemen through airstrikes as well as through the blockade, which is a violation of international law, you know, creates a massive humanitarian crisis, the blockade of all air and seaports of Yemen for, for years. It's basically saying that, let's say a government in Europe says, we don't support Russia in its offensive campaign against Ukraine but we will give Russia defensive weapons to defend itself. So by default, you still support them. The shaky ceasefire you're talking about, is this the truce engineered by the Chinese? No, the Chinese caught everyone off guard. The Chinese brokered a, a, a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yemen has not been fully resolved or discussed. That's still up to negotiations. But Yemen itself was one of the factors why Saudi Arabia and Iran had to be brought to the negotiation table by the Chinese. As far as the Saudis are concerned, I think they are trusted Chinese, that the Chinese have some sort of influence over the Iranians to make sure that their influence in Yemen isn't too great. That's why the Chinese are important. That's why the Chinese-mediated settlement is important between the, the Saudi and the Iranian detente. So what are the next steps that you think need doing in Yemen, or is this beyond any help? Well, I think what, what ordinary Americans can do is support UNICEF, Save the Children, any other humanitarian NGOs that are working in Yemen. Again, we're looking at 80% of households fail to put food on the table in Yemen. The problems in Yemen are you know, ubiquitous and are systemic, but it's not something that we can't help. So I think a political settlement needs to happen. I think a lot has to do with the framing by the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is still reluctant to really pull the Saudis away from that particular conflict. And that's why it was so extraordinary that the Chinese were mediating rather than the Americans. Surprised you? It surprised me too, yes, absolutely. Are you at all wary of China in the Middle East? Well, well overall... I favor a liberal order, the liberal order that has been maintained by the U.S. It's a rules-based liberal order, and all liberal democracies in the West, of course, are part of that. We have you know, several organizations, multilateral treaties, organizations that maintain this order. It's a rules-based order. If we're looking at China and Russia, they certainly favor illiberal order. Russia has been telling everyone that Democracy is overrated. Human rights is overrated, right? Transparency, accountability is overrated. NATO, European Union, United Nations, these are all Western-dominated organizations that don't really serve your interests. So that's been Russian propaganda and, of course, you know, culminating with the invasion of Ukraine. I think for all the faults that the U.S. government has, at the core, 
there are benign intentions. At the core, I favor a liberal order based on liberal democracy and human rights. I think that's why that struggle in Ukraine is so important because, you know, this is really the liberal Western democratic order versus the Russian illiberal order that Russia wants to instill. Bernie Kostler is a political science professor at James Madison University and co-author of Proxy War in Yemen. Earlier this year, China brokered a truce between Saudi Arabia and Iran, two of the biggest rivals in the Middle East. My next guest says China's emergence in the region might actually be a good thing for the U.S. Ariel Aram is a government and international affairs professor at Virginia Tech and co-director of the Proxy War Initiative. Saudi Arabia and Iran have a long-standing and deep geopolitical rivalry over status in the Gulf. That conflict has in many ways fed the civil wars that we see in the region, especially in Syria and in Yemen. And the conflict has been festering. Iranian proxies attacked Saudi Arabia's oil fields. Saudi Arabia was accused of supporting militants and rebels inside Iran. And things were looking very, very grim. China did a fair bit to try and encourage Tehran and Riyadh to resume normal diplomatic relations. That does not end the conflict, but at least it puts them on a firmer footing in terms of being able to discuss the region and talk about plans for de-escalation. Still, it's important not to overstate just how much China contributed. President Macron of France was also involved in the negotiations. There were meetings in Iraq hosted by the government of Iraq between Saudi and Iranian officials. So China came in really in the 11th hour and was given credit for brokering this peace that had a lot of partnerships and a lot of involvement from other countries as well. Why is China getting more involved in the Middle East? Why was China a natural nation to turn to for helping broker this truce? China's position in the world, not just in the Middle East, has been growing considerably over the last 20 years. There's no question about that. China, in many ways, has become the biggest customer for Middle East oil, especially as the United States has been able to develop more energy security. China is the biggest consumer of oil from Iran and from Saudi Arabia at this point. And both countries know that their economic futures rely on selling to markets in China and India. At the same time, China doesn't carry the same kind of baggage that the United States does. When the United States makes offers for political mediation or diplomacy, there's an awareness that the United States also carries a big stick that it has a major military presence in the region. And many countries resent the idea that the United States can be both a, an honest broker and a military power in the region. China doesn't have the capabilities to project military power into the Gulf region in the way that the United States does. It's, it's probably decades away from being able to do that. What it offers are commercial incentives, financial incentives, and prestige. And for many actors, that's a more attractive set of offerings than what the United States has to offer at this point. Is the U.S. alarmed by China playing a bigger role? The U.S. is alarmed at almost every step that China takes. And I think that there's a difference, differences of thinking within the United States about how to look at China's advances. There are some who see it as really a zero-sum game, that every, every step that China takes that's positive must be at the expense of the United States. There are others who think that there might be areas for cooperation and load-sharing that would allow China and the United States to both come out on top. I think we've been more and more tending towards the zero-sum view of China. Certainly, that was the perspective that came from President Trump. And to a certain extent, it's also the perspective that comes from the Biden administration. But it's not certain. And I think that we could go on a case-by-case -case basis and evaluate China's involvement in different countries and say that there are some that are probably more productive and generate more stability than others. Try to make a case for why the U.S. should stand down and appreciate China's presence there. The United States relationship with the Middle East has changed dramatically over the last 25 years. The U.S. has committed enormous amounts of blood and treasure and lost many lives trying to fundamentally reshape the region. I think that that idea is now passe. I don't think there's anyone in, in the United States government who thinks that, that those wars were good ideas or that they would like to repeat them. 
The U.S. needs less from the Middle East. It needs less oil. It cares less about counterterrorism. It's less concerned about democracy promotion in the region. And the United States has been thinking about trying to pivot away from the Middle East, pivot towards Asia now for over a decade, and still hasn't quite figured out how to do it. China's ability to step up and become more involved in the region could allow the United States to focus in other areas that otherwise it wouldn't be able to, to do. I think in this case, especially allowing China to sort of claim credit for a Saudi Arabia-Iran deal brings some stability to the region, allows a de-escalation, and keeps the United States from having to be too concerned about some kind of escalation that could lead to a war. How do you think China's diplomacy will differ from American diplomacy in the region? For one thing, China is much less demanding on issues like democracy, political freedom, and reform. It's much more amenable to authoritarian regimes in general, and in fact, sees authoritarian regimes as, as its natural allies. So in that regard, China does not put conditionality on its political support or on it, even on its economic support requiring different kinds of reforms. It doesn't criticize countries for the way that they treat their own citizens. That's pretty attractive for many of the authoritarian regimes. Additionally, China has always been skeptical of ideas about humanitarian intervention, the responsibility to protect that have been used to justify military interventions, such as we saw in Libya. At the same time, we don't really know what China's approach to conflicts are. We think about the civil wars in Yemen, civil war in Libya, civil war in Syria. There are really two ways that they can end. They can end with victory or they can end with some kind of peaceful negotiation. And we don't really know which of those outcomes China prefers. So just because you have an agreement between Tehran and Riyadh does not necessarily mean that peace will trickle down to the war zones in Yemen and in Syria. It just means that these two economically advanced countries can continue to, to sell oil to China and be happy with each other. That doesn't mean that peace is coming. And it's not clear that China really has any stake or feels that it has any stake in these conflicts. You're co-director of the Proxy War Initiative, which brings people together with the goal of ending conflict. What was the genesis for the Proxy War Initiative? The Proxy War Initiative began with a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York that was directed to me and to my collaborator, Dr. Ranj Ala Aldin, with the idea of convening a series of meetings across Europe, the Middle East, and the United States to discuss conflict resolution scenarios. One of the things that we realized was that conflict resolution approaches had often focused on the relationships between two countries, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for instance, without paying attention to armed non-state actors. In many of these conflicts, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Libya, it's the armed non-state actors that are doing most of the fighting. It's militia groups. And so we wanted to have a forum where people from the NGO community, from the diplomatic community, from the political and military space could come and discuss ways to handle conflict mitigation to improve the conduct of these groups, to make them more responsible for humanitarian concerns. We've had a series of meetings in the last five years. Thanks to COVID, we've been a little bit delayed. We've met uh, in Switzerland, in Virginia, in Iraq. We're having our final meeting next week in Abu Dhabi at the Emirates Policy Center with the goal of trying to develop and disseminate new ideas about conflict resolution that are alternatives to this notion of simple conflict resolution, just getting people to sign a piece of paper. What have you found in these past gatherings? What have you learned works? One of the things that we found that was really surprising was that many actors that when they're in the conflict area have developed their own kind of informal modes of operation for engaging with armed non-state actors. They have ways to talk to non-state actors, to talk to them about humanitarian law, to talk to them about responsible treatment of civilians, to talk to them about conflict mitigation, to talk about local pieces, local truce and local pieces that are often divorced from the big conversations that are going on hosted by the United Nations. In bringing those local approaches, these kind of tactical approaches to light and sharing them, we find that there are many ways, many levers that we have to try and influence the actions and the attitudes of non-state actors that are different from the standard approach, which really focuses on peace agreements between the larger parties and developing stronger states that can eliminate militia groups, reinforce their power across the, across the total territory. I mean, I'm trying to imagine people in the U.S. trying to approach non-state actors who are promoting violence, right? 
and the effectiveness of that. Can you can you find an analogy in the U.S. where this sort of thing works here? I can point to a direct analogy that the U.S. was involved in in Iraq. We've heard a lot about what was called the awakening movement in Iraq, where the U.S. recruited Iraqi, Sunni Iraqi militias to try and form anti-terrorist forces that would drive out al-Qaeda from areas in western Iraq. It took a long time for the United States to be interested in the idea of recruiting militias to do this. The U.S. would have preferred to strengthen the Iraqi army and use the army and the police to push out al-Qaeda. But what they realized was that they could never get that done. They couldn't train the army fast enough. The army was never effective enough. And that real power on the ground was being handled by tribes, by religious officials, by neighborhood watch associations, by vigilantes, frankly. And that you had to engage with them one by one to try and make peace block by block, village by village, neighborhood by neighborhood. It wasn't a perfect solution, but it did deliver a measure of peace and it brought stability to Iraq sufficient for the United States to make its exit in the end of the decade. As you pointed out, the people of Yemen, Libya, Syria, they've been mired in civil war for decades. Can you imagine that Chinese diplomacy there will at some point improve their lives? What I've observed about these really terrible conflicts is there are often times where peace looks close at the negotiating table in Geneva or in Stockholm or in Washington, D.C. or even in Riyadh or Beijing, where it seems like everyone is in agreement, everyone sees the end goal, and they can find a way to, to reach it. But those agreements are really far away from the realities on the ground. And the fighters on the ground in Yemen and Syria have their own motivations and they have their own means. And so we have to think about peace as coming not just from a kind of top-down process, trickling down from agreements that come uh, in national capitals, to think about peace that comes from the bottom up. I think if we focus only on this top-down agenda, if we think only about what's happening to the great powers and to the, the big regional powers, the Irans and Saudi Arabias, we're never going to be able to effectively build peace on the ground in countries that have really suffered the brunt of these wars. Ariel Aram is a government and international affairs professor at Virginia Tech. He's also co-director of the Proxy War Initiative. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Lillian Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>